1: The inquest opened at 10 a.m. on Thursday, the 3rd of September, one week after Cyril Gidley's death. The press was at the ready outside of the Perth courthouse, along with a few keen spectators and some of Audrey's supporters, including family and friends. But it was Audrey the reporters wanted to see. Audrey Jacob didn't disappoint. She stepped out of the car and walked up to the court building dressed in a silk navy blue dress, covered over with a henna-coloured overcoat, with fur cuffs. On her head, she wore a cloche hat with floral decorations. Whisked quickly into the courtroom, she sat next to her counsel, Arthur Haynes, glancing occasionally over at her parents. Arthur Haynes was known as a self assured, opportunistic lawyer, but today his entrance was less confident than he'd hoped. He hobbled into the room, aided by crutches, clearly in pain from a recent car accident. But Arthur Haynes was always looking for the best legal angle. Right now, he looked like a struggling lawyer in need of sympathy. When he rose a short while later to begin his opening address, Haynes was shaky on his feet. It was perfect.
0: Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Dr Lee Straw is an academic, historian, and writer. She's the author of several true crime books, including The Worst Woman in Sydney, A Biography of Sydney Underworld figure Kate Lee, and The Petticoat Parade: A Social History of Josie Debray, A Brothel Madam from the notorious Rose Street, Perth. Lee Straw, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: The ballroom murder describes an event in Australian history that could have been lifted right out of the works of F. Scott Fitzgerald without giving too much away. What was the phenomenon of the ballroom murder?
1: Well, thank you for mentioning old Fitz um, Fitzgerald is one of my favourite authors, so it's really nice to start with the mention of, of F Scott. But you're right; it it has that 1920s feel to it. The basics of it is it's a, a murder that occurs in a ballroom in a very large building in Perth Government House, and it's a, an iconic building in the 1920s. It's holding on to its colonial past, and it's very elegant. Um, there's an annual ball that is taking place. And a young woman turns up to the ball with a friend. She sees her ex-partner dancing with other women and is clearly taken aback by this. Um, but in a normal situation, that would have just been a lover's tiff. It would just been a moment of where she's disgusted at his actions and she leaves him to his own. But she doesn't. She goes away, she gets a, a gun and she comes back and she shoots him dead on the dance floor.
0: Nothing more dramatic than that. Now before we talk about the main characters, and they're really very much like characters, Fremantle and Perth in the 1920s, what were they like? How did they differ culturally and socioeconomically?
1: Well, Fremantle really held on to its working class identity. It had the port and it was a very important place of, uh, of shipping and, uh, and and imports and exports uh, in the 1920s. And, and so it's a very different place to Perth because Perth was the capital. Uh, it was uh, emerging, I guess, as a city in the 1920s, although it was still pretty much a big country town, really by comparison to places like Sydney and Melbourne and and other parts of the country. Um, But the two places were different because Fremantle, as I say, loved its working-class identity, its port identity, whereas Fremantle people kind of saw Perth folk as a little bit more sort of upper class, more middle class, more um, wealthy and disconnected from the working class folk of, of Fremantle. And that wasn't always true. That was just the rivalry between the two places. And so you have this idea of... Uh, a city and a port and never the twain shall meet kind of thing. But of course, there's always the interplay of working class identities across the two places and wealth. It's in Fremantle as much as it's in Perth as well. But certainly, as I say, uh, Fremantle distinguishes itself as a working class place.
0: And I suppose the characters in a way embody that difference. Audrey Jacob, the woman in question, the murderer, so to speak. She was a Fremantle girl. Who was Audrey Jacob?
1: So Audrey Jacob was a Fremantle girl, as you say. Um, She travelled a bit around Western Australia with her father's work. So she lived in the country for a little while and they'd come back of the the last few years before 1925 to live in Fremantle. And so she comes from a a sizable family, um, two parents who you would probably say are are lower middle class. Um, Her father certainly has um, quite clear, important work as a clerk of courts, and so he's the, the main provider for the family, but she's a little bit different. So Audrey is different in the sense that she's more creative, she's artistic, and she's also a young woman who's hitting her a real, um, I guess, important years as a young woman in the 1920s. And she is, as we would refer to other young women of the time, an emerging flapper in the 1920s and and her father doesn't like this and he also doesn't like the fact that she's also very artistic. And so he's tried to keep her away from a, a career with art and tried to encourage her to get other work. So she's a young woman, 20 year old in 1925, who's really trying to find herself Um, But she's certainly that flapper who pushes the boundaries and pushes the boundaries because she's down at the port with friends and she's meeting men and she's going to dances and she's she's certainly somebody who is, I guess, a part of that sexual flapper identity as well.
0: And at some point she meets her, well, prospective fiancé, it doesn't turn out that way, Cyril Gidley. Who was he? Where was he from?
1: Yeah, so Cyril Gidley was a young Englishman. He was 25 by 1925, and he'd been in Western Australia probably for about two years, we reckon, He'd come over from England. Um, One story had it that his parents had said to him, you need to go away and get some work and earn some decent money. Um, There was kind of this speculation of a roguish kind of identity in England. And so he gets work on ships. He's a ships engineer. Um, And that kind of work means that he's at various ports um, at different times. And so there's a story that's established that he's a bit of a ladies' man if you look at the two of them, they're both young people in the 1920s who are certainly experimenting with their own identities and their experience and and also their their own um, relationships with men and women too. So he's not dissimilar to to Audrey. He might be five years older, but he's certainly a young person of the 20s. Um, But he has this Um, identity as uh, working on ships. And so he's, as I say, from different ports, he meets Audrey at Fremantle port. And then from there, they develop a relationship.
0: Enter the lawyer, Arthur Haynes, he's described as a man committed to social justice, but seems there was much more to Arthur Haynes.
1: Law was in his veins, his blood, however you want to put it, but he certainly had come from this established legal family. He had a reputation by the 1920s of not only sort of seeking attention in court, but he actually stood up for a number of women who he thought deserved a better say in court. And so he had an established relationship with a number of street walkers and women who worked in the brothels in Perth, who actually went to him to represent them. They actually trusted him when they they went to court. So that was an interesting part of his um, perspective on social justice. He really did want to represent people and he did want to push for social justice for all. But he is also a gun of a lawyer because he sees a good case and he sees that case with Audrey And he knows this is his opportunity where the odds are stacked against him to actually develop a really interesting defence case. And so what we see with Arthur Haynes is a very interesting individual who has the legal know-how but also knows how to work a courtroom and to feed into the sympathy of the press and the public as well. And that's exactly what Audrey needed.
0: Now, this was supposed to be an open and shut case of willful murder. That's what the prosecution envisaged. But before the trial took place, there was an inquest. What was the purpose of that inquest?
1: The purpose of the inquest was to establish just how Cyril Gidley was was killed, the evidence, the medical evidence to support that. And then it was also to bring in the evidence of others to support that this would go to trial. So the main point of the inquest is to ensure that Audrey goes to trial. So at the end of the inquest, we see that it is ruled that it is willful murder, and therefore she has to stand trial. So it might have been open and shut, and certainly that's how the police saw it, but they still had to follow the process of going through an inquest to then go to trial.
0: There seems to have been a good deal of conflicting testimony, even during the inquest and and also in the ensuing trial, particularly around the character and behaviours of the players and I call them players because they still seem like players, characters. What was that based on?
1: That was really based on the setup of Audrey and her character and her having been a young woman supported by her family and this is a terrible thing that's that's happened to also set up that this is out of character, this was unexpected that this would happen that she would shoot an ex-lover dead on a dance floor. And then the evidence that's brought in around Cyril Gidley was a little bit in the sense of the police were trying to establish here's he the victim in the case. We need to show who he was. But the conflicting evidence that starts to come through is there's a uh, the character that emerges in the inquest around Cyril is somebody who's problematic, that her parents had trouble with, that her mother especially didn't really trust this young man and that he had almost been terrorising the family, that this relationship was starting to break down. He was very controlling, very manipulative. And that is the perspective of the parents and also what Audrey has been telling her lawyer as well. So you really start to see the case changes. It's not simple open and shut case. Now you have the uh, the lawyer, particularly Haynes, who's setting up a case here is saying, this Cyril Gidley might be the victim, but he's not necessarily the nice guy in the case. There's bigger problems that are here that would explain why Audrey went to these lengths or why there was this moment where she snapped.
0: An interesting phrase comes up in your book, Arthur Haynes' approach hinges heavily on this statement, a right to revenge. How did Arthur Haynes used that phrase in his approach to uh, the case in general.
1: Yeah, well, he uses it in the... that We know that the French courts have used it before. Uh, it's not common in the Australian courts, and that's why this case is quite sensational, that he introduces this. Then we have this situation of he's trying to convince people that Audrey was rightfully seeking revenge because she was wronged, She had been assaulted and therefore, because of that, it was her right to seek revenge. And so now you have this other level of the case that's becoming more complicated and it still raises the questions over what actually happened between these two people, between Audrey and Cyril. The reality is we'll never quite know because only the two of them really knew what happened.
0: Now, there's always a role for the media to play in big stories like these. And and it was the Mirror newspaper, I think, initially that took up the story. How did the Mirror handle the story? And what part did they play as the inquest and the trial unfolded?
1: Victor Courtney was actually there. The editor of the Mirror newspaper was there when Audrey had shot Cyril on the dance floor. So he's a witness. And in that moment, you can imagine, he's an editor of a a very popular newspaper, loves a good scandal, loves the sensationalism. And he would already be thinking, my goodness, I'm a witness, but hold on a minute, this is a great story. And so we see from those very first moments, Victor Courtney is gonna be working this story and he's gonna be realizing there's the interest that'll be there and he wants to seek out as much information as possible. What then happens is not only do you have the editor of the Mirror newspaper who's got his obvious interest in the case, Arthur Haynes meets with Victor Courtney to discuss the case. So Arthur Haynes, um, Audrey's lawyer, is meeting with the leading editor of a newspaper in Perth and saying, I can give you some information and if you run with this information, People will buy your newspaper, but it's also going to help my case. So there's, a again, there's so many layers to the case, but then you have the media involvement, which has a, a significant impact.
0: And it seems Arthur Haynes was much more than just a lawyer.
1: Yeah, he was. He was most, definitely much more than a lawyer and certainly a man who, who knew the, the, the wider um, scale of what was unfolding around him. Um, but certainly a man who... who I think, sought out good stories as
0: well. And what impact did this case have on Australia, not just Perth, but Australia-wide?
1: Well, it was a case that was reported in newspapers across the country. So there was an interest that was there. You've got a 20-year-old art student. You've got a sensational case where she shot her lover dead on the dance floor of Government House. Um, which is again you know this is a significant place for it to have happened um, and people are drawn to the story of what's going to happen to this 20 year old woman and when you have a, a case that unfolds and people are reading about it in newspapers and they're seeing that perhaps maybe Cyril isn't quite the the best person in the relationship that there was problems that are there then there's questions is this a young woman who's been wronged is has what's happened between the two of them has that then led to her shooting him on the dance floor there's a lot of intrigue in the case and it, it keeps people following it across the country because this is not something that usually happens we know that even at that time one in four criminals are women so more it's the case that men are more likely to commit crimes women are less likely to commit Um, crimes such as homicide or manslaughter and and other serious crimes so already there's the interest around this young woman Um, and it raises the question too what's always interested me is you've got a young non-Indigenous woman who's fronting the court and I when I was going through the records I was always thinking about how different would it have been if it was an Indigenous woman who was fronting the court in the 1920s.
0: What was the significance of the case both legally in terms of precedent and also socially?
1: Well, legally, it sets a precedent that certainly for prosecution teams, you can't take these kind of cases lightly. You can't just think it's an open and shut case. What the prosecution teams had to then realise was they had to look at the defence and which way they could go, what could they look for? Is there some kind of defence that they could create, even when you think there's not really a defence for this? That's what Haynes had set up. He had set up this situation of a person can claim revenge, and that was unprecedented in the Australian courts. It's the, the legacy of this case is we've never seen another like it. There's never been a case quite like this where you can make that claim, and it was made in the 20s and it was made at a time when, when that seemed certainly plausible. Um, But what carried from this case, the impact that it had on Perth society, is that it's left a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions that do remain about Audrey, her relationship with Cyril. Cyril is dead. He can't defend himself. He couldn't come forward and, and, and rebut anything that Audrey was saying or her lawyer was saying. And... One of the other legacies I found of the case too was that the police realised afterwards that they should have called on more witnesses who could have supported Cyril's character. And so that has affected cases since where you have to make sure you've got a very tight case and that your victim, there's clearly witnesses to support that victim. Um, Don't just rely upon it being an open and shut case.
0: As a final question to you, Lee, I want to talk about your general obsession, or perhaps it's a passion for true crime, your previous books, The Worst Woman in Sydney, and then The Petticoat Parade, which actually focuses more on the notorious brothel street of Row Street, Perth. So it suggests to me that you have a deep interest in true crime, but also crime relating particularly to women.
1: It was unexpected. It sort of developed over the last uh, few years. I mean, my initial passion, I guess, with history and um, with researching it is actually the Kennedys. So there's something that's like completely off the side, you know, that I, I, I'm really interested in the Kennedys and, uh, and Robert Kennedy especially. But I was going through archives and in going through archives for other projects and for teaching, I started to come across a lot of stories about women. And it made me realise I didn't know these stories. And as somebody who is a feminist and uh, and likes to really delve into the past to look for women's stories, I was appalled by the fact I didn't know these stories. And, and some of these stories are in my own backyard. And I just I didn't have an understanding of what ordinary women went through. So I, I was discovering women who were convicted of a number of crimes, and, and some wrongfully so, and... and these stories were just left in the archives and they hadn't really been picked up. So it was that moment of realising what I didn't know that led me down the road of wanting to know more about women, and yet women in particular in relation to crime. So with the likes of a Kate Lee, you've got a Sydney underworld figure that I wanted to not glamorise or sensationalise her story, but I wanted to tell her story as an organised crime boss because we don't hear a lot about women as organised crime bosses. And then Kate led me down the road of it's the tangled web of once you get into true crime, you've got a story and then that story will link to another story. So Kate led me into telling the story of Lillian Armfield, who was Australia's first unranked female detective. Now, she's the other side of the law. And so from that story, I went from Lillian to dulcie markham who was another notorious underworld figure in sydney brisbane and melbourne and these stories all interlinked with each other but at the center of it along with petticoat parade and the roy street brothels at this, at the core of it i want to bring out women's stories in a variety of forms and i want to get past the idea of the good and the bad woman It's not as simple as that. You know, it was in the 70s, feminists were writing about um, damned whores and God's police, you know, that great book by by Summers. And she was critiquing that. She was saying women are categorised in this way and characterised as, you know, they're either the good woman or the bad woman. So I want to tell stories of women. It's a whole mix, you know, that sometimes you might look and think they're really bad women. But they're actually pretty good in a lot of respects as well. So it's more muddier, murkier. There's more grey area, I think. But, yeah, at the centre of it is just really wanting to tell women's stories in relation to crime in a variety of ways.
0: Lee Straw, thank you for joining me on The Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I've been talking to Lee Straw about her new book, The Ballroom Murder. It's published by Fremantle Press, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.